The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. And we are back to another edition of What's of the Rocky Sound. Frank, thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late for some of you, but boy, do we have a special treat tonight. Genevieve, how you doing? I'm doing quite all right. Thank you. Uh, you're enjoying the, the the time change. This was our first week with the, you know, we're back to Pacific Standard Time here in the in the West Coast. Oh, it's too much, you know, because my family back in Europe have a different time change. So mm -hmm. theirs changes at a different time on top of that. Just stick to the same time, Earth. No, it sounds it sounds pretty bad. Shout out to everybody tuning in tonight through uh, Ustream, iHeartRadio for catching the podcast. Uh, hello to you, sir and madam. I hope everyone's doing lovely. Um, just one sir and one just madam. One, just, just one sir and one madam per show. A little quick bit of news. There was sort of a UFO sighting that was visible here in California, and it was visible as far as Nevada and Arizona. Doing the kind of show that we do, we heard a lot about it. I've seen a few rocket launches, not NASA, you know, big rocket launches, but some rocket launches, some missile launches. And judging by the video, that's what it looked like to me. So I wasn't quick to jump on the, it's a UFO thing. Now, it turns out that it was actually a Trident II missile test launch. And it's really interesting. I was looking into this. Trident II missiles are actually used to deter a nuclear attack. The particular one that was launched was not armed, but obviously the, the social media was, was uh, on fire. And here's the thing that if there is a UFO sighting over a city, that's what should happen. That's why I'm always worried about the one person that records like that one video on YouTube and there's no other videos of it. Mm, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And you know, if it's something that's seen over a metropolitan area, especially the size of LA, you expect hundreds of people to see it, like it happened in this case. I was reading that uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of Ryan Perry, who's a commander in the Navy's third fleet, said that this was part of a scheduled ongoing systems evaluation test. And these launches are conducted on a frequent recurring basis to ensure the continued reliability of the system. Everybody was a little angry because, well, if you knew you were going to do this, how come you didn't let people know? And instead, you waited a whole hour, as MUFON pointed out on their Twitter, mm -hmm. to tell people that it was a test. The reason for that seems to be that because it was a test launch of this particular missile, uh -huh. they didn't want Russia or China to know about it because the early stages of launch are the most important because they can gather a lot of information as far as the fuel, the speed, trajectory, okay, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So they were keeping it secret because of that. But it seems that LAX, the, you know, LA International Airport, had advanced notice no, that something never was... Never heard of it. Never heard of it? Oh, <laughs> the lovely place. I recommend you go there on a Sunday afternoon. Great place for picnics. LAX seemed to have had advanced notice because they were told that nighttime flights in and out of LAX were to avoid passing over the Pacific Ocean just west of the airport because apparently... They were going to be doing some tests there, and this is what uh, Reuters uh, reported. Yeah. So, look, I'm all for a good UFO sighting. Believe yeah, me, yeah, I am. But <laughs> sometimes me, you got to <laughs> believe me. Believe her if you don't believe me. 
But sometimes we got to call them for what they are. And it looks like this was a missile test. Now, if you want to put on the conspiracy cap on, ask yourself a question, was it really a test of this missile for these purposes or was it something else? Mm -hmm. I'll leave that story there, dot, dot, dot. We shall discuss that later. <laughs> I also want to send a quick shout out to our good friend Ernie Alonso, who actually spent the weekend in Snowflake, Arizona at the Skyfire Summit. Speaking of UFOs, it was the 40th anniversary of Travis Walton's abduction mm -hmm. in the forest of is, Snowflake, is that, is Arizona. That, is that something you um, celebrate in a positive way, in a commemorative I think, I way, think, right? I'll say positive just because I think it opens everybody's... It was an advancement in terms idea, of knowledge. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, as, as far as yeah. to this phenomena, right? Still one of the most well-documented cases. It's just anniversary sounds so cases. celebratory. You know, you know? We, we interviewed Travis, we interviewed Stanford Freeman, who was the first one to interview Travis back in 1975 about his uh, UFO abduction. And honestly, I'm still perplexed by it. To me, it's, it's quite the mystery. So I want to send a shout out to Ernie Alonso of Haunted Orange County, who was down there with another good friend of ours, Ben Hansen of Sci-Fi Factor Fake. He is actually tonight hosting the premiere episode of UFOs Declassified on the Smithsonian Channel. So if you're listening to us now, you probably missed it because that was at 8 p.m., but I'm sure you can catch the replay after the show, you know. You well, know how no, cable but, TV is. They but always... they always have, like, the plus one channels now as well. Oh, do they? Which is basically okay. the hour later version. Oh, wow. So with that bit of news, Genevieve, I believe you, you got a little introduction tonight for our guests. All right. Well, we do have to welcome Steve on the show tonight. Steve Steve Concatelli is um, executive producer of the Out of Time documentary, which we'll be talking about um, this evening. Steve's been making award-winning television for over 20 years now, and in that time, he's worked pretty much every job in the industry, eventually landing him where he is now as an executive producer. Um, Steve has helped create over 500 hours of television with partners including Universal Studios, Paramount Pictures, Discovery Channel, True TV, CMT, Spike, G4, and many others. I am super excited to be able to welcome him onto the show. Steve, can you f hear us all right? Yes, I can. Hello, and what a fancy introduction. I sound so important when you say it like that. Thank you. <laughs> you. You are quite quite an important gentleman, and thank you so much for taking the time for being with us tonight. We, we really, really appreciate it. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. It was interesting hearing you talk about the uh, the rocket launch because I'm in Los Angeles, and so that's been all a buzz, you know, with all my, yeah. my Facebook friends. And uh, I had been watching the military helicopters fly out over the ocean and fly back for the last few days and so it's, it's hmm. nice to know that you know what it was about yeah yeah i mean it definitely you know i can understand a lot of people really excited about it and we're living in some uh, interesting times i'll say that much politically and, and otherwise so i can understand you know people's panic you know talk about things that go up like a rocket you just did this documentary and it was included in the uh, 30th anniversary box set of back to the future and it was called the out of time saving the delorean time machine we're huge fans of the movie as you can imagine you know we oh yeah uh, you know it, it, life changing it's an understatement in my case but how does one grow up to make a documentary about restoring such an iconic piece of movie history uh partly just by chance mm -hmm. uh and partly by by hard work i mean i I had been a fan since the film came out probably just like you you know i i saw it in the theater i was a pretty young kid and it just made this huge impression on me. So, you know, now I, I live in Los Angeles. I work in television. And mm -hmm. it, I just so happen to be very good friends with several of the 
time machine replica builders in mm. Los Angeles. Okay. Um, and one of them, one of them uh, was named Joe Walser. And Joe, for people in the Back to the Future world, he's I would say hands down the best replica builder in the world. Mm-hmm. And oh wow! Joe and I, you know, we're, we're children of the '80s. We had a lot in common, and, and you know, we got along very well. And then when Bob Gale, who produced Back to the Future, asked Joe to restore the car. Mm-hmm. Joe, of course, jumped on the chance, and then that gave me a chance to document the process and try to bring the story to the fans. Wow. And I was reading, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah, Bob Gale handpicked Joe for this project, correct? I imagine he must have been, yeah, ecstatic would be, you know, again, an understatement. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, Joe Joe is really at the at the epicenter of, of Back to the Future. Joe was the co-chair of the 25th anniversary celebration that happened in 2010. I don't know if you were in Los Angeles about two weeks ago for the the Back to the Future 30th anniversary date that just happened, the big one. But Joe was the co-chair of the big We're Going Back fan celebration. It was a five-day complete blowout, you know, where they showed the movie out out at the Puente Hills Mall where they shot the film. Yeah, I mean, Joe was the organizer, the co-organizer with with Kim Kapilowski of, of all those events. So Joe is really like at the center of all things Back to the Future. So, yeah, when Bob asked him, to answer your actual question, uh-huh. when Bob asked him to, to do the restoration, I mean, he, he, he couldn't say yes fast enough. This is what puzzles me, because the DeLorean is a very unique car. It was the, the brainchild of John DeLorean, only model really to ever go into production. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the the, the, the estimate was something around 9,000 DeLoreans, DMC-12s were made, and something around 6,000 are, are still around. How do you go about finding parts for a car that has been out of commission for, for decades? And on top of that, where do you find the parts to restore a movie car that obviously, you know, these were probably handcrafted parts specifically for the film. Ah, yes. And see, you're, you're getting to the very heart of what the film talks about. Um, finding parts for a DeLorean, they're, they're not as difficult as you can imagine. DeLorean, uh, a version of the DeLorean company still exists. So, so getting parts mm, okay. for the stock car is, is not as hard as you would think. It's getting time machine parts. That is what is virtually oh. impossible because it turns out that when... They built the car for the film in 1984. They just went around Los Angeles to various surplus supply yards and and picked pieces that looked good and put them on the car. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when they went now, when Joe and his team went back to try to repair and restore and find replacement parts, it turns out that the parts they had used were vintage World War II and 1950s military aircraft parts. Wow. And... And they're parts that are virtually impossible to find. And if you can't find them, they're wildly expensive. Mm-hmm. And and the restoration team spent a, the better part of an entire year. The restoration took a year. And the team spent a lot of that time scouring the entire planet looking for just the right parts to put back on the car. Because... Some parts are literally one of a kind on the time machine. Wow. No, I mean, it looks like it. I mean, I'm so used to seeing a DeLorean with all the uh, time circuits on it that when I see a stock DeLorean, it almost feels like it's naked. It's crazy how much that movie influenced the collective uh, perception of a DeLorean car, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even myself, every time... 
you know, I've been around time machines a lot, but when I see a DeLorean drive down the street, that's still the first thing I think of. It, you know, they go hand in hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The particular DeLorean that you guys restored is called the uh, the A car, uh, I believe. And it was one of how many cars that were used in the trilogy? Well, in the first Back to the Future film, there were three cars. Okay. There was the A car, which was called the Hero car. It was the car that was used for the vast majority of of shops. The, the A car was the, the most detailed inside and out. It looked the best. It was all the beautiful shots, like the shot of the car pulling out of Doc Brown's mm-hmm. truck, you know, that, that that's the A car. Okay. Then they, they built a B car, and the B car was built for stunt work. So when you see, like, the driving stunts and some of the crazier shots of the cars sliding around, that's that's the B car. Then they had a third car, which was the C car, which was a car that they had cut in half so they could get the camera inside because the DeLorean is very tiny. Mm, okay. So they built three for the first film, and then they built more for the sequel. So they built a fiberglass car that could pretend to fly, you know, when they land the car in the back alley in part two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a lightweight fiberglass car. And then they built, I think, three more for Back to the Future Part 3. They built some two off-road cars, and they built a special train car that popped a wheelie. So I think all told, there were seven cars, but one of them was made out of fiberglass. So I'm not sure if you want to count that as a real DeLorean. Gotcha. The the hero car, the the A car. I've been to Universal Studios over the years several times, and one of my favorite parts was going on the studio tour, and I would anxiously await to get to the car section of the of the tour because obviously the DeLorean was parked there and you know I was all about that car and I remember I would go you know a couple of times a year and it seemed like every year the car would just be in worse shape why the Universal let it you know get to the state that it was in it was actually a lot of different reasons there's not specifically just one thing to point at Mm -hmm. Um, you know first of all is that it was you know by, by 2010, the car was almost 30 years old. And right. any car, you know, even if a car is well-maintained, if it sits outside for that long, it's, it's going to be in tough shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was the weather. One of the factors were fans would actually sneak out there to take pieces off the car and take them home as souvenirs. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, and that was an actually a, a pretty big problem. Fans took a large number of pieces off the time machine and Frank, don't tell them. <laughs> I'm hiding the uh, flux capacitor I took the other day from that. It's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because the flux capacitor is one of the parts that was taken. Oh wow! That I swear I didn't yeah. know about. I didn't do it. I swear. <laughs> I no, and but what's great though is that a lot of and I talk about this. There's two versions of the film. There's mm-hmm. a short version on Blu-ray, mm-hmm. and then we we just finished a long 60-minute version that'll come out in a few months. But in the, in nice. the long version. We talk about that because it turns out that when the restoration began, Bob Gale called on fans to say, hey, if you took something from the car, please bring it back. And a lot of fans returned pieces, including the original flux from the car. Yep, a fan had had, had, uh, returned it, and it was in great condition, and they were able to put it back in the car. So it was... That's so uh, nice. Yeah, and the fans, you know, the fans who had taken stuff, they mm-hmm. simply didn't want the stuff to be thrown out. They wanted it saved. And when wow. they had a chance to, to bring it back, they all these fans stepped up and, and, you know, cheered on the car and became a part of the process. So they actually, in some way, they helped save the car, and that's great. That's really but, cool. Yeah, but sorry, I, I got off track. But to answer your original question is why did the car get so bad? It mm-hmm. was it was simply a combination of, of weather, of fans taking parts. And, mm-hmm. and at the time... Um, prop restoration was not a high priority for a lot of studios. I mean, nowadays, as soon as a movie is done, all these props, you know, they 
they're they're treated like you know like royalty. They're they're carefully right. put away mm-hmm. and they're carefully cataloged. But that wasn't the case even 20 years ago. You know, yeah. after yeah. for decades, when a movie was made, these props were literally just thrown in the trash afterwards because they they weren't needed. Mm-hmm. And it was in the 80s when movie studios like Universal started to realize, hey, we have to keep these pieces. And one of the first props that was actually kept was the time machine. Wow. So, yeah, it was, so it's actually, you know, it's easy to say, oh, the time machine looked rough, but mm-hmm. you have to remember at the time, you know, Universal saved that car because they knew fans wanted to see it. So right. It yeah. was there. They actually put a lot of thought in the fact that, oh, we still have it, thank goodness. You know, it's funny because we were interviewing uh, Houston Huddleston, who is uh, uh, the founder of the the Hollywood Sci-Fi Museum, and we're mm-hmm. talking about props, you know, movie props, and mm-hmm. and just just to piggyback on the on the point you just made, uh, he was telling us how it was much easier for studios to literally throw away props, and you know, yep. one of the most heartbreaking things for me, uh, besides the DeLorean, another childhood favorite of mine was uh, the movie Flight of the Navigator, and I remember seeing on the internet a, a few years back that the uh, the 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 ship uh, was just mm-hmm. in the and some back lot just covered in dust and you could tell the sun and the weather and the elements had taken its toll on it and yeah i mean it's um it's really you know it hits you right in the childhood as they say <laughs> when you see something like that that was such a, a an important part of your growing up just and unfortunate no one wants it. Yeah, yeah it's just kind of laying around if it's okay with you steve i want to play the trailer to the documentary because i want people to get an idea of what we're talking about here and just how big of an endeavor this was because let me tell you it's no small feat all those wires all those components all those meters and gauges and whatnot to get all this stuff back on the original car it's just a, a huge undertaking so would it be cool if we let our friends watching on Ustream and you know if people are catching the uh, the show uh, on our website after the fact we'll we'll link to this uh, trailer so people can check it out so what do you say if we if we give it a listen roll it time was not kind to the time machine it had been sitting out in the rain for years, and all these pieces started to fall off the car. Fans would go out there to get a collectible, a memento. The flux capacitor and the time circuits were missing. The, the most essential parts of the time machine were just gone. It made me feel sad. We were definitely in risk of losing the car forever. I felt, no, 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 something has to be done. I knew we had to find a way to save the time machine. There was just no question about it. This was a full-on museum quality restoration. This is something that's unprecedented in film history. The original flux capacitor is the one. It was almost unbelievable that something so old can come back from the dead. (laughs) It's alive! The amount of work that it took to restore this car was staggering. The wires had to be exactly how the wires were. The colors of the wires had to be right. I think the uh, current restoration team is insane. (laughs) Oh my god. You guys are blowing me away with this. The time circuits in the A car didn't work at all. It was all movie magic, and Joe wanted me to make it actually work. So awesome. Everyone was so excited because the DeLorean's becoming the time machine again. It's being resurrected. Whoa, this hasn't looked as good since the movies. Universal Studios trusted us with this icon. I hope we did them proud. 
This was important to the studio. It's so important to the fans of the movie, and they gave it their all. Like I told the guys, our pain is temporary, but the car will be perfect forever. Wow. That was fun. That I mean, fun. that's that's some heavy-duty stuff. Steve, there was something, you know, very key there that, that I picked up on, and that is that the, that the time circuits, the, the idea was to get them all to work, and I know that the build team had to put a computer there that made everything work like the movie because apparently it didn't work that way for the film. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. In the movie, uh, it was all controlled. You know, the sound effects were all added later. That uh -huh. was movie magic and and the time circuits didn't function at all like like you imagine they would um and so when joe uh you know had the opportunity to, to restore the car he said okay we're gonna we're gonna make these things work just like they should have in the movie if the car was real hmm. so he hired a team of expert computer programmers in fact uh Aro, one of the guys who, who's in the movie talking about the time circuits he actually works for nasa He's like an actual oh, wow. rocket scientist. Yeah. So he, Ara and his team built a computer system from scratch to control all of the computer systems in the car. So if you get in the car and you turn on the time circuits, all the sounds fire up at exactly the right time. You can punch wow. in and wow. flux capacitor works. Like everything works in the car the way it would have if it were real in the movie. So it actually works better than the A car actually did for real. And how fast does it get up to 88 <laughs> miles an hour? <laughs> uh, I can't speak to the A car, uh, mm -hmm. but DeLoreans in general, if you love a DeLorean, you don't love it because it drives great. Right. You love it because it's a DeLorean. Yeah, of course. I mean, from my experience, they're, they're a little challenging to drive as cars. Um, they're, they're tough to get up to speed, but... Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people who have really nice ones that are fast and good looking. So nice, you know, it runs the gamut. But yeah, mm -hmm. I'm not a very tall guy, but I know that the uh, John DeLorean stood, uh, you know, at a very tall six foot four, and he designed this car mainly for, you know, so that he could fit comfortably. You know, you say you have experience driving the car. Is it awkward driving a DeLorean? Is the wheel too high or too low or the seat too far back? How, you know, I've never driven one, believe me. I'm an aspiring DeLorean owner someday. Uh, what's the experience driving funny. a DeLorean? See, I'm not a real car guy, which is funny because I made a documentary about the <laughs> To me, in my experience, DeLoreans are, they're like driving in a bucket. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're really low to the ground. Right. And it, it's, it's hard to see out of all the windows but but what's funny though is that driving a, a delorean a stock delorean is it's challenging because you know you don't it's a sports car and you don't have the best vision but mm -hmm. driving a time machine version of a car is uh essentially suicide i would really say because well if for several reasons first mm -hmm. when you're driving a time machine you have no back window because that's where the you know that's where the flux capacitor is and uh -huh. so you literally do not have a back window then you have all this stuff on the dash you can't you have trouble seeing out the front but the worst part is when you're driving down the road fans are constantly almost running you off the road trying to take photos of you <laughs> oh wow <laughs> so it's yeah so oh if, if you drive a time machine it's a parade wherever you go i bet people veering into your lane snapping photos on their iPhone. it's crazy oh, but uh yeah, very, very challenging to drive a time machine out in public. I don't recommend it. I'm I'll guilty of mine, that. I'll keep mine 
locked up then. <laughs> no, but I, I'm guilty of that. There's been a few times where, you know, you're driving and you see somebody with, with one of these uh, replicas and you can't help but just stare and wonder in awe at this particular car. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the, the team that it took to bring this car back to life? How many people made up the team and, and sure. how fast uh, did they work to get it done? Like I said, the team was headed by a man named Joe Walser, and Joe spearheaded the team, and he is the one who basically handpicked all the team members uh, to work on the project. And Joe put together a team of what he considered the absolute best time machine builders in the world. Wow. Yeah, and uh, and actually, yeah, they became the official time machine restoration team. That's what they're called. Mm -hmm. And I would say there were probably about two dozen people who worked on the car. Um, I mean, many, many more contributed and, and helped, but there were a core group of about two dozen guys who actually worked on the car um, often, and the restoration took almost exactly one year. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, you would think that a, a restoration, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you just slap some paint on it mm -hmm. and slap some wires on it, and it takes a couple months, but no, no, not this team. They, they fussed over every millimeter, every color, every little bit of that car was fussed over by a team of experts to make sure that it was exactly like it was in the movie. And, and so, yeah, Joe and the team, I mean, the amount of, of love and work and dedication mm -hmm. they put into this car was insane. Yeah, I was reading that it was a museum level or museum quality restoration. Oh, absolutely. Can you tell us just a bit about that? For example, what are some of the challenges that the team encounter working on this car? Sure. I mean, the short answer is that every single thing is a challenge. Because <laughs> wow. You're, you're, because you're working on what I consider the most famous movie car ever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, right. it's a car worth millions of dollars. And so, you know, you're not building a replica, you're restoring it. And a lot of the challenge was taking the pieces off the car and, and instead of replacing them with new pieces, trying to restore what was there. Because <laughs> what the team, what was so important is trying to keep as much of the originality of the actual car that was there. And, and that's a challenge. Um, I think personally, I think one of the most interesting things and the biggest challenge was getting all the pieces that were on the car back on the car and what i mean by that is after after the film's all wrapped you had seven cars right mm -hmm. well it turns out that back at universal studios all these parts would fall off one car and get swapped on another car and they would end up on this car oh, and they wow. would swap to that car and it became a big huge mess as to you know all these cars and all these pieces nobody was sure what belonged where mm -hmm. and so joe and the team had to go through and track down okay no this piece they go frame by frame and they would they spent weeks at the Universal Archives, and they looked through tens of thousands of photos from the production to say, oh, no, in this one photo, you can see this little piece here. That must be the B car. And, and no, this one, it belongs to the A car because the way it's scratched right here. Mm -hmm. And to try to get all the pieces back onto the A car correctly, you know, back on its home, it was just, again, you, you when you sit there and you watch this team work, you're just like, you guys are the most insane people in the universe. Like, nobody's going to notice. Nobody's going to notice any of this stuff, Joe. And he's just like, I would notice. Wow. <laughs> wow. As you just uh, mentioned, you know, just about every aspect of this uh, rebuild was challenging. But one of the first things that popped into my head was we're talking about a car that out the gate 
did not come with a paint job. So there was no way to hide any imperfections or anything like that. We're talking about stainless steel no. body. How hard was it to get the body panels back to their original shiny silver glory? Yeah, that even that was a challenge because, yeah, as you said, you can't hide it with paint. It's not a normal car. And Joe, Joe said very early on that they could have easily just replaced them all and mm -hmm. not told anybody. Right. That was not going to fly with Joe. Joe said, no. These are the real ones. These are the panels that were on the car, and these are the panels going back on the car. So he, Joe, and the restoration team polished and filled holes and and sanded and you know did everything they could to bang those panels back into shape because you know it it, it was important. And again, it's it, it just goes to show like to put new panels on the car would have taken a couple days, but. The way they did it, by fixing all this stuff and putting the originals back on there, took weeks and months, you know, because it mattered to everybody on the team because they knew that's what go back on there. And, you know, Joe was there filling holes and, and, mm -hmm. and fixing those those panels. And, yeah, it was because it was important to them. I make the team sound like they were, they're kind of crazy and they're kind of insane, and that's 100% true because they were. <laughs> You have to be a little bit, right? Not a, no, you have to be a lot to be on this <laughs> team because these guys would go up there and they would work on the car. Like what people don't realize is many of the people on the team had full-time jobs on top. Of oh the wow! They, they had day jobs. Wow! So these guys would go to their day jobs uh -huh. and then after work at 6 p.m. drive out to the car, work all night long, all night long Friday, work all day Saturday, work all day Sunday, and then drive straight into work. Monday morning and go back to their office job. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was a level of dedication. I have never seen anybody else ever do. And, and, yeah, I mean, they were they weren't just a little crazy. They're completely crazy. I was reading on the uh, website outoftimemovie.com, which is the website for for the documentary. The last question in the uh, frequently asked questions section: It's uh, uh, was making the movie a dream come true. And you said that for you, yeah, for your wife, not so much. Talking about dedication, well, how much of your time and, and how involved were you filming and getting the footage for this documentary? Uh, yeah. It I, I think it's only fair to say that all of our wives, um, we had time machine widows. Like we, <laughs> our, our, our wives, you know, my wife, uh, Marcy, Joe's wife, Cindy, all the other wives were extremely uh, supportive and patient because mm -hmm. a lot of us, it's funny, I think three of the guys had, wives had children, had babies during the restoration. Oh, wow. You know, and they were oh, away wow. <laughs> working on the car. It was, it was tough, but um uh, yeah, you know the the wives were were extremely supportive, but it was I was oh my goodness, was, congratulations! Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, thank oh I have yeah exactly I was one of the guys who had a little one at the time. Oh really? Very tough. Oh well, congrats! Yeah, but yeah. I, I, <laughs> I won't go too much into that. I don't want, you know, I don't want to bring up any bad, yeah, any tough emotions. But hey, look at it this way: your kid, your kid will, uh, will, uh, you know, think you're the coolest. The he'll think you're the coolest dad because you got to, uh, to, to work on this project. Uh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut in there. No, I was just gonna say, like, I, I was pretty. I was as involved as I could be. Um, I actually, you know, when Joe mentioned that he was doing the restoration, I said, I, I have to help out. You know, I have to be a part of this. And he said, well, can you fix a car? I said, no, I don't know anything about mm -hmm. cars. He said, well, okay, well, can you make uh, movie props? I said, nope, I'm terrible at that. <laughs> and he just kind of looked at me and he goes, what can you do? And I said, well, I can make a movie about it. I'm really good at that. And he said, okay, that's your job. 
Nice. So That's cool. my job became documenting the restoration, and I was I was there as much as I could be. I was there um, every weekend, both days, for an entire year, wow. shooting footage, if, if not more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I was one of the team members. I mean, I was I shot everything. I think was it like forty or fifty or sixty hours of footage? Oh wow! Just, yeah, and because I I wanted to get this on camera because when we did this back in 2012, you know, I, I knew that this was a story that I thought fans would want to see. Like, hey, this of is course. fascinating. It's once in a lifetime opportunity. And I just happened to be in the right place as a fan to say, hey, I would really like to see this story told. So I just grabbed my camera and I started shooting. And then, you know, three years later, Universal Studios saw it and they're like, yeah, we want this for the Blu-ray. And, you know, it, it was born out of out of simply the love of me wanting to you know, thinking it was interesting and wanting to let people know about this cool restoration story and just how how amazing the restoration team is that did it. And it looks like I was right, hopefully. You know? <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, it's been immortalized, obviously, in the in the 30th anniversary uh, edition of the movie. As far as the car goes, to me, the car is another protagonist in these movies. In the documentary, what do you want people to, to take away from it? Do you want them to see the car as that, as one key character, you know, and let's face it, without it, without this, you know, iconic car and this genius idea of making a car into a time machine and not just, you know, some room somewhere. What do you want people to walk away with from watching the documentary? See, that's a great question. I've never been asked it before. It's, I think what I want people to realize is I think everybody who is a Back to the Future fan knows how much the car means to them. You know, Mm -hmm. like you said, it's an iconic car. I, you know, I, I can still remember when I was 10 sitting in that theater and I saw the car for the first time, mm-hmm. I still remember like it was yesterday Yeah. and it just, and it had an impression on all of us. And what, what I want people to take away from the film is seeing the car's complete story. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. we, I tried to tell the story that fans don't know about. Well, when the camera stopped rolling, what happened to the actual car? Like the real life story of the car is almost more fascinating than the, than the movie mm-hmm. version of the car. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what journeys did the car take? What, what challenges did it face? What happened to it? And then, most importantly, the story of the team that brought it back to life. You know, mm-hmm. why did they do it? How did they do it? Right. And how can we make sure that these props never fall into disarray again? And speaking of, where is the car now? I'm not entirely sure. Um, the, and I say that because the car was at Universal Studios. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is in the process of being relocated to another permanent home in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not, yeah, yeah. All I know is I don't know where, I don't know when, but I have been assured that the car will be on display, uh, indoors, mm-hmm. you know, and it will be well taken care of. But in terms of when or where it'll be unveiled, uh, I guess we'll all have to just wait and see because I'm not even sure. Well, hopefully, yeah. I mean, after all this work, I'm sure that, that the uh, necessary uh, measures are going to be taken to to make sure that it's preserved in, in its newly pristine condition because oh. it looks great. I mean, I'm, I, I saw some of the pictures you sent over. I know that also on the uh, Facebook page of for the uh, the build, which I believe if uh, people are interested, we'll be posting this link as well. But if people are interested, they can head over to facebook.com forward slash Time Machine Restoration altogether. And uh, you can look at the pictures there. And I mean, it looks amazing. It's uh, scary and sad to see the condition that it was originally in. And you look at it now and it it looks like, you know, it's ready, you know, for its close up once again. Yeah, it is actually. I mean, Bob Gale 
himself when he saw the car uh, for the first time. He said it, it looks better than it did when they were shooting out at the mall, you know, in 1984. Mm-hmm. You know, the car looked better than it did. But and and that's a testament to Joe and the team. But uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 exciting and it's fantastic. Nice, as you mentioned, the uh, the version of the documentary that's on the on the uh, uh, 30th anniversary edition of Back to the Future is uh, 20 minutes long, and you have made the the longer 15 minute documentary. Uh, where can people watch this, or when is it going to be available for for people to enjoy? Actually, I made it even longer. It's a six, it's a full 60 minute documentary. Oh, very cool. And uh, yeah, the the long version, I guess we can call it the director's cut, but it's it's a 60-minute version with even more bonus footage, uh, audio commentary. It's got, you know, with bonus features and all that great stuff. That will be available soon. Um, I'm hoping within the next two months or so. We, we don't have an exact release date yet, but uh-huh. we're working on it, and we're, getting, and we're getting close. But it'll be available hopefully, uh, yeah, not even hopefully. It'll be available definitely within the next few months. Before we let you go, Steve, why don't you tell people where they can find more information on the documentary and what if they want to grab, you know, like a T-shirt or a poster? Is there anything like that? Where can they get it? Absolutely. If you have purchased the Back to the Future 30th Anniversary Blu-ray and you saw our little feature on there and you want to see more, this is, you know, you are in luck because our longer version of the documentary with more detail and more stuff, you can go to our website. It's out of time, movie, out of time, just like the license plate, O-U-T-A-T-I-M-E, mm-hmm. outoftimemovie.com. And we have links. We have a store where you can pre-order um, Blu-rays and digital downloads. We've got some great movie posters that are very reminiscent of Back to the Future style. And actually, we have we have one poster on there that's a photo I took the night the car was finished. And in fact, it's a photo of the car that Universal Studios liked so much that they used it in the Lego booklet for the time machine. Oh, wow. When they released the Lego time machine. Yeah, that was a it was a photo I took, and Universal said, God, we love it so oh, much, wow. we want that for the Lego booklet. And I said, are you kidding me? Legos <laughs> and time machine, my two favorite things ever, and you want to use my photo? Nice. Yeah. So we even have those available. And, yep, and uh, it's all available right now for people to go to. That's really cool. So definitely for all the Back to the Future fans, check that out. And I believe there's a bunch of... Um, Flux capacitors fans out there also waiting for um, a cool track that they might be able to um, rally up for for the documentary. They they've been um, hoping to compose a, oh, really? a tune for the documentary. Um, Steve, was... the flux capacitors say hi. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I know the flux capacitors very well. Nice. Uh, you know, back to, back to the Future is a very small family mm-hmm. and you tend to know everybody. And yes, I, I know them very well. Yeah. And yep, I've been talking with them and hopefully we can make magic happen. So you have to stay tuned and see what happens in the future. Definitely, wow. definitely. We look forward to that. A lot of exciting stuff. Definitely people check it out. Out of Time Movie is the website. As Steve mentioned, it's spelled like the license plate, O-U-T-A-T-I-M-E movie.com and check out the Facebook page if you want to see some cool pictures of the uh, restoration process right there on Facebook facebook.com forward slash time machine restoration and uh, definitely check out the uh, 
the documentary once it's out there and, and people can watch it. I highly recommend it. I mean, if you're a Back to the Future fan, if you love DeLoreans, if you love everything about the movie, Honestly, definitely no, check I, it I, out. I don't think you need to say if you love it because like it's one of those well, things that's like entertaining to, just to watch, you know? Yeah, actually, uh, Steve, before I let you go, it's because fun. <laughs> this is this is something that I heard uh, somebody say and, and I had to agree. And that's that Back to the Future is like the perfect movie. You can't talk about that movie and say, oh, I wish they would have done this or, oh, they should have done that. It was just perfect. Are those your thoughts as well? Oh, uh, that goes without saying. I mean, to make a movie about a movie is a lot of work and a lot of dedication. And, and so, yeah, I I love every frame of that film. I love the story. I love the characters. I, I love the car. I, I, I'm in love with that movie. And uh, believe, I've been making a movie about the movie for several years, <laughs> so I had sure as hell better love the movie. But uh, I know I speak for myself. I know I speak for Joe Walser. I know I speak for the restoration team that, like, yeah, it's, the movie is, is, was, and always will mm -hmm. be a huge part of our lives, you know? And so to be... It's strange to be a fan and yet to be have an official involvement in Back to the Future is extremely surreal. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, just like you, I grew up as a kid in the Midwest. I grew up as far away from Hollywood as you can get, and now to be here associated with the time machine, yeah. you know, all of all of us on the restoration team are just kind of scratching our heads because it's unbelievable that we get to be a part of this incredible magic franchise in some way oh believe me i i envy you in a good way steve i really do would you say it that it's one of your favorite movies ever are you a sci-fi fan in general oh i am i i'm definitely a sci-fi fan i mean boy i grew up right in the sweet spot of the 80s so between you know between uh mm -hmm. back to the future between ghostbusters mm. i i happen to be one of the very few fans of explorers um, I know Joe Walter shares a love of that movie with me. See, you guys uh -huh. didn't even react when they said explore. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just gave, I just gave Genevieve a look like, what? <laughs> sorry, I, oh, I failed that one. I failed that one, Steve. I'm sorry. No, oh man, shame on you. I know. Explorers uh -huh. is one of the most underrated little sci-fi movies ever. Uh, River Phoenix, Ethan Hawke, I think it came out in 1984. They build a spaceship out of a tilt-a-whirl. Oh wow! Anyway, oh, well, I gotta watch that. In that there, case, but... um, we have a little thing that we do. Um, would you be able to maybe give us your top five sci-fi movies that we could put up on our website? We would oh, love to God. do that you're, you're, you're I, on the spot. On do the I have spot, right now, or can I email them to you? Email, email is good. Yeah, email is good. good. Email is good because Woo. we would love to put them on the website. It's it's a thing we do, and we like to give people. You know, I I always feel that um top five movies are a good way to gauge a person you know no like, pressure steve no pressure steve. When, when someone, but, but you said it's true sci-fi movies sci-fi yeah movies, no no not five. yeah sci-fi well, but you know what i, I mean I can, <laughs> yeah i can i mean i can pretty much tell you bad future is number one would you count ghostbusters as sci-fi i mean it's, it's I, I, so, I would yeah, i would yeah yeah fiction technology in it okay definitely so definitely yeah it's back to the future Ghostbusters, Aliens, and then I got to figure out the next two. Okay. Movies, so. Okay. Yeah. No. I, I. We should have given you a little bit more of a heads up, I'm but sorry we, about we were that. reminded by the, the. What was the movie you just mentioned? Explorers. 
Yeah. Yeah. See that that's what reminded me that you you were one of the people that we should have asked that question. But yeah, believe me, we'll send you an email just to remind you just in case because we we love to hear people's you know top five lists, especially when they're you know involved in in the world of film and cinema. Uh, obviously, you know you interact closer with uh, some of these productions. And like I said, it's always interesting to to get people's take on you know their top five. It's 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 always good. So no, I'm, I could I'm never choose. Very cool. Steve, thank you so much for, for granting us this interview. We, As you can tell, we love talking all things Back to the Future, DeLoreans and the likes. And hopefully we can find out where the, uh, where the DeLorean will be uh, calling home so that uh, people can check it out, including myself. I'm yet to see the, the, this newly restored you oh, know, piece of movie so history. Well, whenever the car goes on display, I guarantee I will be there. The restoration team will be there and it will be a celebration to behold. Awesome. Be amazing. Thank you so much, Steve. And, you know, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us tonight. Hey, thank you. And like I said, it was, you know, it was worth it to tell the story of, of what the restoration team did because it was incredible. Absolutely. They, des they deserve all the credit and all the glory because the car is beautiful because of them. I just made a movie about it. They're the <laughs> heroes of the story. Well, I think there is a place in that pavilion for you, sir, because without you, we wouldn't see what happens. So thank you for, for uh, taking on that role and doing such a great job at it. Well, thank you. You are most welcome. Have a great night, Steve. Good night, Steve. Uh, will do, guys. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was uh, Steve Concatelli. That's such a fun name yeah, to say. No, that's, that's, that's a really cool Italian-sounding name. Steve Concatelli, who was the, uh, the uh, producer of this, documentary, <laughs> <laughs> of this documentary, Out of Time, Saving the DeLorean. Check it out. Visit the website, outoftimemovie.com. We'll be posting all this on our website once uh, you know the, the show is done and we have it up there for everyone in case you missed any part of it. Again, amazing interview. It's a lot of fun. We're going to take a quick break here. Mm -hmm. And when we come back, we're going to come back with some more news. But you know what? We're talking all this Back to the Future stuff. And obviously, Back to the Future Part 1, one of the, the most iconic things on top of the car and the characters was the music. If I can geek out for a minute, when I first started playing guitar, my first guitar hero was Marty McFly from Back to the Future. Mm -hmm. And uh, after years of bugging my parents for a, an electric guitar, I got an electric guitar. And I remember there was something about that guitar that looked familiar, and it turned out to be a very similar model as the one that Marty McFly plays in the gym at the beginning of the yeah, movie. Yeah, whatever. You just bought it because he had no, it. No, I swear I didn't know. But it was an, uh, for the guitar players out there, that's an Ibanez Roadstar Series 2, if I'm not mistaken. He had the one with the uh, rosewood fretboard. I actually had the one with the maple fretboard but it was still cool because it was still mostly black like i said uh, uh one of my favorite parts of that movie was also the music so why don't we take it back to the enchantment under the sea dance and uh let's play some uh marvin berry chuck berry's cousin in the movie and this one's called night train enjoy west of the rockies is coming back for the second hour don't go away here we go What's up, guys? This is Jorge Diaz of Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones. And you're listening to West of the Rockies with Frank. This portion of the show is sponsored by Haunted Orange County, your premier source for all things haunted in and around OC. From haunted history ghost walks to ghost group hunting expeditions at some of SoCal's most haunted destinations. Make your fall plans early and book an upcoming tour or investigation today. Visit hauntedoc.com. 
And we are back to the second hour west of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we're having a great time tonight. Genevieve, how are you doing over there? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. No, uh, I want to thank again, huge thanks really to Steve Concatelli, executive producer of the uh, Out of Time Saving the DeLorean Time Machine, uh, the documentary where they chronicled the restoration process of the original DeLorean A car. We were just talking about all the the, the crazy things that, that went into making this documentary and, and, and documenting the build. So definitely check it out. Again, the website is outoftimemovie.com. Out of time, like the license plate, O-U-T-A-T-I-M-E, movie.com. And check out their Facebook as well to get a look at some of the pictures of this amazing project. Facebook.com forward slash time machine restoration, only one word. And as you heard during the break, this is a segment brought to you by Haunted OC. And tonight, as a special treat, we have Mr. Haunted Orange County himself, Ernie Alonso, <laughs> on the line. Ernie, can you hear us okay? I can hear you. I just love that commercial spot you just played. <laughs> <laughs> How are you guys doing? We're doing great, Ernie. Uh, now, for the people that don't know, you're actually uh, driving right now. I'm here. I'm here with a world-famous UFO um, conference speaker and star of the new Smithsonian show that debuted tonight. Yes. At 8 p.m., Mr. Ben Hansen. It's Mr. Ben Hansen in the house? Yes, yes. We are in the remote <laughs> uh, wilderness of Arizona, so we might lose you here in a bit. Oh, goodness <laughs> well, me. Well, we're going we're gonna to try to make sure that to, to cram everything in uh, before, before that That's happens. What she said awful okay. now i saw some pictures that you guys were posting it snowed in snowflake uh i'm guessing that's where snowflake got the name but it looks like you guys got a, a bit of snow out there yeah there was um there was actually it was a little bit of a blizzard on our way over here ben was driving as we got up to the lodge and uh then we woke up in the morning and it was uh, pretty much blanketed in snow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, understatement, Blizzard. Ernie, you were sleeping while I was driving. No, I think Ben, <laughs> ben, ben, ben up about 70. He loves to exaggerate. I was going 20 miles an hour. We were going about 45 <laughs> miles an hour, and it was a blizzard. I can see that this was a very, very fun road trip for the, for the both of you. Once you got out there, obviously, you know, we've heard a lot about this case. We've discussed it on this show. We, we, we've talked to Travis about it. One of the most interesting, perplexing mysteries, really, of, of our time. What was it like going out there and, and being in the spot? Uh, first of all, did you guys go to the exact spot? Where the uh, where the event happened is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Actually, it was my first time going. Ben has been there several times before. Mm -hmm. I'm working on a documentary um, for Travis, and um, me being my first time there, it was a little different than what I had expected. Um, ben pointed out that the actual movie was filmed in Oregon, right? Yeah, most of it was filmed there because the director felt it wasn't. Uh, Spooky enough, oh. tall enough, and so uh, there's been a big fire that, that went through there in 2002, so it's kind of thinned out a bit. But you do not—I don't know many people who want to be there in the dark by themselves. Really? Yeah, it was—it was a little. It actually started getting dark while we were up there, and it was actually on the anniversary, on the actual anniversary of the incident, just about to the hour, right? Yeah, we were there uh, exactly 40 years to the day. Wow. Uh, 
to the hour. It happened a little bit after 6 o'clock, so the sun had gone down. Um, you can imagine the kind of the crew and what it would have been like for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're standing, what we've been able to approximate, within about 15 feet of where it actually occurred. Oh, wow. Uh, so it, it's really cool. But what was awesome about the conference as well is that we had assembled um, so many of the original crew members, um, both in the documentary, there were seven people. So we had Travis, of course. Uh, this is the first time I met Mike Rogers, who was the crew boss. We also had um, the deputy, John Goulet. We had the first deputy who was on the scene. Wow. The, you know, kind of older guys now, but it was amazing to hear them retell the story from their point of view. Mm-hmm. And, and when uh, these guys went and took the polygraphs and had them all assembled, and now to be like, yeah, we believe Travis, we believe the story. You know, they were kids mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, yeah, of course. You guys were there interacting with Travis. How did Travis feel about, about you know, visiting this site 40 years after? Not to sound crass or anything, but is he kind of like over it, or does it still affect him to, to this day when he visits that site in particular? I actually did a, a really quick interview with him today, and that was one of the questions I asked him. Mm-hmm. And he said that, like, time has passed so quickly um, that he feels like it's, you know, it, it happened recently. And then I also asked him how it felt to be around the guys that, uh, you know, like Ben was mentioning, some of the crew members that were with him that night and um, and why he decided he really wanted to commemorate it. He, he thought that, you know, I guess two had already passed away mm-hmm. and um, it was a life-changing you know, event, obviously, yeah. that he felt was important to commemorate it, especially so, you know, if we're not getting any younger, he wanted, mm-hmm. you know, to do it especially on the 40th. And I'm not going to say that I was 100% convinced when I first met Travis uh-huh. a couple of years about the story, but after listening to all the testimony and the people going up there and, and speaking and um, just even the documentary that Ben was a part of that we watched last night, there was a banquet and they, they screened the newest cut of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that these men are telling the truth. And so... Um, it was it was an amazing week. Um, we actually even got to stay in the same cabin as uh, as Travis. So that mm-hmm. was really cool. That's yeah. really cool. Uh, while you guys were out there, was there, the, you know, Ben, I know you, you, you do a lot of sky watches, et cetera. Uh, did you guys do anything like that out there? And was anything seen? Uh, uh, did you guys see that missile test that apparently happened out here and was seen all over the place? <laughs> well, last year we did a sky watch on the actual site. We did do a day tour. So this, this year we did no sky watch on the site, but we did uh, the first public day tour. Um, we did a sky watch about 13 miles away down um, near Heber. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our people actually saw that missile test. They came back and they were they're frantic. Oh my gosh, you've got to get your night vision. Come look at this thing. And, and I missed it. But, you know, it was seen from California clear up to here. Right. Um, so it was kind of funny that that all happened while we were, you know, just after we packed up the Skywatch. Um, well, it was actually the next day. But um, at any rate, we did capture something that I'll be posting on my website um, at, at benhanson.com mm-hmm. and at nightvisionops. Um, and I think it's going to turn out to be what we, we call a geostationary satellite. Because I want to show people what it looks like, but it's kind of eerie because uh, it's a satellite-like object, but it's pulsating. 
Oh wow! And it's it's in uh, you know pretty far out there, about twenty two thousand miles is where the geostationary satellites are. But it's glowing like about every sixty seconds. It gets really really bright and then dims out. And um, I think that's what it's going to end up being. I have to do a couple you know like measurements on the screen and see if it's actually moving or not. But mm-hmm. um, it's quite impressive, you know, to see this wow. on, on night vision, have everyone there and. Uh, Yeah, no, that is really cool. And Ben, I know you do a lot of work with night vision equipment um, for the purposes of searching the skies for UFOs. Do you find it to be an advantage, Uh, not necessarily at night, but, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about UFOs that move in in different light spectrums and things like that. Is that the reason why why you've been experimenting with uh, night vision? Um, Yeah, exactly. There are... uh a lot of people who use it who have been able to film triangles, for example. Um, it does see a little bit deeper into into other spectrums. Um, the night vision can only be used at night, but we also uh, have been experimenting with thermal cameras, which, uh, you know, the paranormal ghost hunting mm-hmm. and uh, the Bigfoot hunters are more familiar with. Right. It's not very much at night uh, in sky watches because they're like, well, we're looking for... Uh, things we can see, not heat signatures, but I have filmed triangles I could not see with my own eyes uh, oh, wow. that only showed up with thermal camera. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. I know it's it's kind of short notice, but what do you guys make of the... I, a lot of people are doing the old back and forth on whether it was a UFO or a missile, what a lot of people saw out, out here off the coast of uh, California. Uh, I know you guys were busy out there, but uh, have you ch- had a chance to, to look over some of the news and, and do you guys have thoughts on, on what that was? I have. I've taken a look at a lot of the photos and video, including some that our attendees captured and um, I think it, it is very typical of the missile launches, including, I mean, we started seeing this stuff way back, kind of like uh, uh, in Norway. Mm-hmm. But that was like a spiral. We've seen these other missile launches quite frequently in the past couple of years, where it's sort of like a cone that comes off the back, bluish or greenish. Um, the only thing that baffles me is I, I believe some of our attendees, you see, if it launched in California, it would have been coming east towards us here in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's more or less going to look like a, a circle, a complete circle, because the plume will be behind it. Mm-hmm. But uh, some of the videos and what the people described was it looked like it was heading out west. Mm. So unless the missile came over and then went back the other way, um, I don't really know why they would be getting that perspective from it. So that was a little weird. Mm, honestly, that's a very interesting observation. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I know that the uh, the Navy is saying that it was just, you know, a, a test and, uh, you know, they do these routinely to make sure that all the equipment is working properly. And the reason why it was kept secret is so that China and Russia wouldn't know about it. And apparently only LAX got a notification of it. This goes to Ben real quick. Uh, is that standard protocol or, you know, should they give a heads up to people that, hey, you know, we're going to be launching, a, a, you know, a test missile, uh, FYI, hashtag LOL. Uh, <laughs> is what do you is that something that happens uh, should you know should we get like advance notice or or do you think that keeping it secret is is definitely in the best interest well you know i that is something i honestly don't know quite that much about i know that i get um, alerts for vandenberg air force base um, a part of an emailing list mm-hmm. just skywatchers in general they'll publish those and they'll say okay we're going to launch this and that 
Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I'm reading in this case, they said it was classified. They couldn't talk about when the launch would occur. But obviously, once it's up in the air, it's not classified that it took off. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think is, I hope, uh, we're putting our faith in them. If they're, they're launching these things, eventually what goes up must come down, right? Or they've mm-hmm. got to push the button to disintegrate it. And um, if it's coming clear out here over over Arizona, I'm sure they've got it figured out to where when it disintegrates, it's going to take place over a testing range, hopefully. Um, because no matter how rural the area, those pieces have to come down somewhere. Mm-hmm. So um, Typically, I think that's why they do them over the ocean. Right. And, uh, not over land. So I, I'd be interested to know where it actually detonated. You know, I've been wondering about the, um, the radioactivity that that's may have been going on in the area because of the tree growth. Oh, um, we're going, yeah, speaking of the, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I wanted to go back to that. Yeah. Sorry, I kind of went, yeah, the whole no, missile I, route. <laughs> go ahead. No, I wanted to. Talk. I I've digress. When you were there, did were there any more developments on um, discoveries in terms of um, the area around where the incidents took place? Um, well, yeah, I could kind of fill people in who I've heard about this. Uh, this was it was discovered um, shortly after, well, fifteen years after Mike Rogers and Frubot had gone out there and taken core samples of these trees. Mm-hmm. And um, what he found was that some of the trees directly around the clearing had increased in volume and size mm-hmm. about 36 times faster wow. than the trees that were further out from the area. So what we discovered in just the past year as we were looking at these sample trees mm-hmm. was that not only had the ones around the clearing grown quicker, but there was a directionality to it. So, mm-hmm. for example, the, the trees on the southern boundary, um, the rings are thicker, and the center of the tree is off-centered in that if you were to look at a cross-section, it looks like it's being pulled, um, sort of like uh, drawn outwards in sort of an oblong towards the what you would maybe call the epicenter of where yeah. the crop was hovering. And... And so if you go to the north, then you'll see increased growth on the south side of the tree. If you go to the west, you'll see increased growth on the eastern side of the tree. So very, very strange. And and Travis was the one who proposed that possibly it was radiation. Um, I think it's a good theory, but we may have gotten as far as we can get with that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I did find research through Chernobyl studies that were done that found the pine trees there had grown three times um, oh, wow. quicker than yeah. the surrounding trees. You'd think radiation would have the opposite effect. It would kill the, the tree cells, and yeah. it does. But what they found was the cells grow a lot quicker, mm-hmm. and, and the cells that are dying are replaced by the, the new cells at, at such a rate that it continues to grow. So wow. um, we don't know. We honestly don't know if that is what had caused it. Uh, the other theory is that perhaps whoever they are, that they have come in the craft to conduct sort of like their own experiment and sort of like had a garden, uh, mm-hmm. you know, per se, of these trees and were trying to make them grow and they were just coming back to check up on them. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe it wow. had nothing to do with the presence of the craft. 
You know, that's that's a really interesting uh, thing you just said because uh, it was kind of goes with the the question I had lined up. Uh, one of the things I I've always wondered is was what's in that area uh, of snowflake? Can you guys think of any reason why a UFO would be you know kind of stationed if I can if I can use the term um, there in the forest? Um, you know, that was going to be my question. So it's, it's interesting that you point out, Ben, that, you know, you think that they might have been, you know, taking disinformation of, of tree growth or something. Is that what you guys uh, think the reason why a UFO would be there? Uh, that is a big question. That's the mm -hmm. big question. That's why we've been out there uh, today. We actually uh, uh, took some fresh soil samples. Uh, one mm -hmm. of the researchers, Phyllis, uh, uh, last name escapes me at the moment, but uh, she's been doing a lot of this trace evidence collection. We're looking for magnetized particles. We're looking at anomalies in the uh, the soil. And we don't know. We really don't know if there's anything different about this area. But mm -hmm. um, there are researchers who look for parallels in UFO landing sites. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And just like that. I think I think we we're getting a bit of interference there from from the being aliens? Uh, driving on the road. <laughs> no, it's 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 quite alright. Yeah, we can we can hear you now. Uh, fine. Uh, if you could just repeat okay. that the 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 last part. Okay. Yeah, we're going through a little mountain here, so we might yeah. Um, the uh, what we're looking for is. Okay. I think it's breaking up. Yeah, I think bad. I think they're going to through a dead zone. But um, you know, actually, I don't want to keep them on the line too long because I know that they're driving, and I know it's nighttime, so it's it's a bit dangerous. We'll uh, let them go for now because yeah, you don't want to you know risk their uh, their safety. But you know, but, you know that's the a... thing is with um, you know my personal interest in um, the tree growth. I I found it fascinating to. Um, hear about the fact that you know that the trees grew differently after apparently you know this this event took place um they started growing faster um they were basically growing better you know three times the rate and it made absolute sense to me and yeah you know first thought some people tend to think oh well, why weren't the trees destroyed? But think about it. What does radiation do? It causes cancer. What is cancer? Cancer is continuous, uncontrolled growth of yeah. a, an organic cell. Yeah. Um, the cells in the trees, the, the organic matter is growing uncontrollably mm -hmm. or at least very fast. You yeah, know, yeah. It, it's growing faster than, it, than it's meant to. And that's what radiation does. That's what radioactivity does. It, it changes, um, the programming of a, um, of the cell growth. Mm -hmm. Um, so that it starts going, weird basically and that yeah it, it makes sense things grow faster when you subject them to radiation yeah. certain types you know not destructive types of radiation but the types that basically destroy the the um growth cycle the programming and mm -hmm. and just make it you know continuously grow i remember it was that last year's uh, contact in the desert where uh, we got a chance to meet travis and and we uh, sat in one of his uh, lectures and that's when he revealed this finding of the tree growth and i remember thinking like i was i was floored because as if we needed more evidence 
to back up what he has said, you know, for the last 40 years, you know, that now there's this, you know, recent uh, finding. It's really incredible. So I want to I want to thank Ben Hansen and uh, Ernie Alonso for uh, for talking to us tonight. As I said, you know, we, we lost connection there for a bit, but we want them to get home safe so they can be on this show again <laughs> in the future. Definitely uh, check out the uh, the upcoming uh, uh, documentary, the, a newly uh, recut documentary the, about Travis Walton. And uh, shout out to, to Travis as well. You know, if, if you want to find out more about his experience and more about the documentary, we have an interview posted on our website, WOTRradio.com, uh, where we talk to Travis. We go back to that event and, and we discuss what it was like filming this documentary. And as you just heard from, from Ben, Ben and Ernie this weekend marked the 40th anniversary that this uh, life-changing event. Also, don't forget to check out Ben Hansen hosting the premiere episode of UFOs Declassified on the Smithsonian Channel. It premiered tonight at 8 p.m. Uh, so if you have, uh, I don't know, what, what what do kids use nowadays? VCRs? Do they still use those? Of course. Yeah. Sure. Uh, sure. I'm sure people <laughs> TiVo'd it. Do people still TiVo or is it called something else now? What? Oh, I guess you guys in England didn't have TiVo. TiVo, you can record shows and stuff. Wow. I guess now it's I, I like... Don't, I don't know what language I think now talking. it's like DVR. All right. Sorry, folks. <laughs> I, I The reason why I don't have the 30th anniversary of Back to the Future in Blu-ray is because I don't have a Blu-ray player. You know, that's how out of touch I am. Anyways, don't forget to check that out. UFOs Declassified on the Smithsonian Channel, hosted by our good pal Ben Hansen. And of course, shout out to Ernie Alonso of uh, Haunted Orange County. Check out hauntedoc.com for a lot of cool stuff. Halloween just passed, but believe me, they always have some really cool events, tours, investigations, and and a whole lot more. Speaking of investigations, they had a, a cool investigation happening during Kamikaze weekend. Defo. On the eve of Halloween. How apt is All that? All Hallows Eve. That, that you is can't right. say you can't say on the eve of Halloween. Yeah, because that's like a means, double yeah. yeah, it's like a double it thing. Yeah. All I, I kinda Eve. caught myself a little late. I was <laughs> hoping nobody would notice, but thank you for bringing it to everyone's attention. You're it was it was a cool investigation and we were there because we were covering all the craziness that is Kamikaze, right? Kamikaze is pretty wild. I must say, every year I'm there, I'm, I'm blown away by the people, the costumes, the art, the artists. And this year was uh, particularly special. We got to uh, sit in, in in a very intimate press junket with the man himself, Mr. Stanley. And that it was, was super fun. It was it was great to, to see him and, and see that at 90-something years old, he still has more energy than me. <laughs> Oh, he's so fun. He is, he's so funny, he's a great guy. fun and energetic. He's just a big kid. He's always cracking those jokes. Seriously. Yeah. Check out our post. We've got some really great candid shots of yeah. him. Yeah, definitely check it out. That's <laughs> WTRradio.com. We'll be doing a full-on kamikaze pose with all our pictures and what how we survived that weekend. Because believe me, it's a lot of work. One of the cool people that we got to meet a kamikaze oh, this year. This. You know who I know will love this? Uncle oh. Creepy. I think Professor Madness might also dig this. No, Professor Madness already digs this. He's oh. watched it already. Oh, he watched it already. Okay, well, yeah. for those of you that haven't gotten around to it, tisk tisk, you can go to WTRRadio.com and see it. No, I'm kidding. We're going to play it right here. We got to uh, interview R.S. Corpsey, 
Ryan. I'll just call him Corpsey. Corpsey for short. Don't don't I be think we're, don't be so I think we're in sure. we're in in that level of friendship. Uh so Corpsey of the magazine Girls and Corpses, a really really interesting magazine. We got to to chat with him, find out what the magazine's all about and how he came up with it. And we're going to play that interview for you guys right here right now. So sit back, enjoy, and if you're on Ustream, you might uh enjoy watching uh that that little lady he's got next to him uh Miss Sarah Hedren, uh, mm. quite a foxy lady. Hedren. Hedren. Oh, sorry, I'm not. Wherever. Goodness, yeah. you're not Swedish. Yeah, exactly. I'm not Swedish. Goodness me. <laughs> so enjoy this one. We'll catch you on the other side. Pretty fun interview with uh, Corpsey of uh, Girls, Girls and, and Corpses magazine. Hi, we're here at the Comicazi Expo 2015, and we are here at the um, Girls and Corpses booth. Um, I'd like to ask, first of all, who are you and what do you do, I guess? You look a little terrified when you said Girls and Corpses, and most people are. We're an actual magazine. We're on newsstands worldwide. It's a comedy horror magazine. You can see here, this is our college, uh, Corpse College issue, and this is our uh, medical marijuana issue, and, we do, and this is our uh, pandemic issue. And this is Sarah, one of our uh, beautiful models who works with the magazine. So we combine kind of horror and comedy and girls, and it's been fantastic. We're the fastest growing uh, genre magazine in the world right now. So how did you come up with this idea, and how long has it been around? Well, we've been around 15 years. We started online, and it became so hugely successful that we became a print magazine. And then we first got distribution U.S. and Canada through Ingram, one of the biggest uh, distributors in the world. And then we got worldwide distribution, and we're also in Germany translated into German. And to answer your question how we got started, um, I have kind of a crazy story. When I was a kid at 10 years old, I, got, I died from a head injury. I had a skull fracture, and I wrote a book called My Brain Escapes Me, which you can look up. Uh, Amazon and all this. So basically, I have this kind of weird start about death and my fascination with it. I'm also a writer. I write a lot of short fiction and I started writing books. So I had that experience and um, I found that girls for some reason are interested in corpses. I can't explain it, but we used to have corpses in our booth at Comic-Con San Diego and girls would always come up and want their picture taken with the corpse. So I started saying, what's up with girls and corpses? And my life has become this crazy world of this magazine, which is a quarterly magazine, uh, and girlsandcorpses.com, A-N-D, spelled out in the middle. Uh, you can check it out. We sell all sorts of stuff, including things like T-shirts. We have crazy products. But it's been a uh, great success story. We're very happy about how it's all gone. And I have a wonderful life because I'm always with beautiful models like Sarah, who's from Sweden. Uh, and she's going to be in an upcoming issue. Uh, so we're always shooting. We've had celebrities on our covers, and it's gone very, very well. You say corpses. Are these real corpses? Are they, are they fake corpses? What are they? Well, I hate to shock your audience, but there are real corpses in every issue of Girls and Corpses magazine. Uh, you might have heard of something called Body Worlds Exhibit, uh, where they uh, plastinize bodies. Uh, we use some plastinization-like processes uh, to uh, make the uh, corpses available to be able to shoot with them. So we do have corpses in the issue, absolutely, every issue. So is this is this a, a magazine along the lines of uh, Playboy? Is it a, a nude magazine or is it something else? 
Well, actually, there's no nudity in Girls and Corpses. And just to let you know that we're so far ahead of the curve, Playboy is now starting next year to have a non-nude magazine. And the reason we went non-nude is because... To me, in, in a lot of ways, nudity isn't creative. It is purient, that part of your mind. And creativity uh, takes a lot more work than just having a girl with her legs spread or her clothes off. So we have no nudity in the magazine. And, and we've done very well with that because we were opposite the curve for 15 years. Now magazines like Playboy are thinking, oh, you know, well, we should do that because... I mean, guys, if you can't find enough nudity on the web already, you don't know how to use your computer. So we want to show some intelligence, and our girls are clothed for that reason. Um, a quick question for Sarah. Um, what draws you to this type of art, I guess? Um, are you freaked out by it at all? Uh, I don't know if I can say that I like, that I like dead people in particular. Uh, I mean, I'm not a people person, but I mean, they don't have to be dead for me to be happy. But uh, I've always liked horror. I'm also into like rock and metal music and there's a lot of like uh, that kind incorporated in that type of uh, music genre. So just something that, that interests me is it's dark, it's different. So yeah, yeah. That's De death metal, of course, is we're always covering death metal bands in the magazine. So we cross over a lot of that. And also a lot of our girls, a lot of our fans are girls that are into metal and goth and all this kind of thing. But the girls we shoot very often in the magazine are more like the girls next door. They're all very kind of innocent looking uh, and not heavily tatted up. So um, because there's, there's a lot of that out there, too. But the combination of a beautiful... Uh, young girl next to a rotting, festering corpse. Uh, it seems to be more of an extreme difference than the girls that are tattooed. Um, one more thing. Uh, do you get any complaints from people saying what you're doing is necrophilia? Well, I, I love uh, controversy, and I love... Well, it is necrophilia is definitely something, you know, it has the scent of necrophilia on the magazine. Um, you know, we're a comedy magazine doing this sort of extreme thing, but I've been at fetish events. A lot of them, people, you know, write me about all this. But in, in answer to your question, uh, I love when I get opposition. And so if you people hate me, send me letters because they're more fun to comment to people that don't like it. And I always find it's funny. We get a lot of controversy from the church. They're always telling us uh, you know, stop publishing and things like this, which is ridiculous because in thousands of years, I can never come close to what the, uh, the organized religion has done. We're not killing and torturing and uh, molesting children and things like this. So uh, I always think that's funny. There was a church called the Crystal Cathedral, which was one of the biggest churches in the U.S., and they sent us a thing saying, we hope you and your corpses uh, go to die in hell or something. What was funny about the Crystal Cathedral is they wound up going bankrupt because they were stealing money from everybody. So I always just find it interesting. When the, uh, it's always religion. Probably the worst of the worst people in, uh, you know, not all people in religion, but organized religion has got some pretty bad history. They invented torture. That's where they came from. So there you go. We're not the Spanish Inquisition. We're a comedy magazine. Everybody just calm down. Um, I guess a final roundup of um, promotional things. Uh, where can people find you? Um, Twitter, Facebook, all that sort of good stuff. And um, for both of you, actually. So um, where can people find you online? 
Well, girlsandcorpses.com. We also have a store, girlsandcorpsesstore.com, where you can buy the magazine. We're also on newsstands worldwide. We're the fastest-selling magazine on a stand. Usually they get two copies. There was an, uh, a story done on the news that we're also the most stolen magazine off newsstands because I guess people are scared to uh, approach the register, and you know, so they just steal it. So uh, you can find us on newsstands. You can Google us. We've had a lot of history and a lot of news uh, where, about the magazine. So you'll, you'll see a lot of stories out about us. Girls and corpses, you can't miss it. And, of course, Sarah, where can we see you? Yeah, uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm Sarah, S-A-R-A. And uh, then on Swedish, I have a funny last name, Hedgren, H-E-D-G-R-E-N. And my website is sarahedgren.com. So check it out. Thank you so, so much, guys. It's been amazing talking to you. And honestly, I urge everyone to check out this magazine. because You need to be in it. That's why. We're going to find you a nice dead body that you can live with. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I like the pun there as well. I'm not sure if it was intended. Um, thank you so much, guys. And we hope to see you again soon. Cheers. So there you have it, folks. Look for Genevieve in an upcoming issue of uh, Girls and Corpses, <laughs> apparently. Um, yeah, she'll be gracing the pages of, of uh, Girls and Corpses. And actually, that should be quite interesting. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no. <laughs> Excuse me. Wow. I'm like dying oh, goodness here. Goodness me. Like dying? I said, well, you know where you can end up next? Uh, where's that drum roll when I need it again? I saw some uh, comment about something about the sound effect in that interview. Oh, you know what makes a video? Sound effects. Great sound effects. Just silly little boings. And I just love them. Yeah, things. Yeah, it's just random things. Uh, <laughs> again, uh, uh, we will be posting a whole, a whole uh, article on, on uh, Kamikaze. There's already some stuff up on the website if you want to check, check it out. WTRradio.com. You can find this video and some other videos on our YouTube channel. Subscribe if you haven't. It's YouTube.com forward slash WOTRradio dot com we have a few interviews on there uh some some cool clips and whatnots and, and we had a catacombs article the catacombs article you know, i spent quite a while translating those uh the feedback has been really good on it so far i mean i didn't translate them word by word you know i, I researched them and using my long gone french and latin skills you know like i i mished mm -hmm. and mashed and created some interesting translations and yeah, no, like because I I genuinely loved the poetry mm -hmm. as I was walking through yeah. the catacombs, and I felt that when you read translations of of poetry, they they don't always kind of Translate grasp properly. at the core of what right. the poem is about, or or it's not even a poem a lot of times. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's like I don't know. Some of them were biblical quotes. A lot of them yeah. were apocryphal quotes. You know quotes. Yeah. Um, it's not about the literal translation. It's about the artistic translation, and that's that. That's the difficulty of it. And yeah. I, I, I kind of veered between the two at times. Sometimes it was like I'll go for the literal one. I'll I'll go for the um, artistic one here, and I'll just go for the like I'll just copy and paste it at this point. I I think that you know it was a really really interesting article. I obviously I was there, you know, taking pictures and stuff, and I was more of the morbid 
fascinated one, you know, with all the skulls and the arrangement and the amount of oh, bones no, and stuff. I was fascinated. Mainly by because words. my French and mind you, I was honors French in high school. I even won an award for French. No, you didn't. I did. That I, is BS. I must have it somewhere. Wow. But, uh, well, all the other people <clears throat> must have been speaking a different language. Miss Donnay. That was her name, Mrs. That's I'm not sorry, even Mrs. Donnay. No, it was it was a it was an English name, but she pronounced it in French, just so that we oh, could all get wow, used to it. That's all right, even worse. don't you talk bad about Miss Donnay? She was amazing. Anyways, uh, she must be quite disappointed in me because, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I kind of, I, I was trying to make sense out of the sign. But I couldn't quite understand. The one I did what understand. Does it, what does it say? It's like, that says toilets, Frank. I know. I was like, oh, oh, wow. They had those back then. Too. Uh, no, but the one sign I like, which was literally at the entrance, was the one that says, stop. Here lies the empire of death. Yeah. How yeah, crazy is that? And that's just a, a small sample of uh, some of the the plaques that yeah. are in there. So but you know, I, 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 there's I, a thing about the French language, though. But like, you know, like when they say like "arrête cette ici you know, l'empire de la mort." Yeah, it's like it's it's here that's that's the empire of death. Yeah. It's like uh, the way they translate it. I don't know. Yeah, it's not <laughs> it's the greatest, different. but yeah, it's, it's slightly different. Definitely check it out. It's really fascinating. I mean, if you like dark poetry and, and really, you know, kind of like broody <laughs> quotes, uh, there is no shortage of them. For example, another one of my favorites is the one that says, whichever way you turn, death will be waiting for you. Oh, wow. They are so grim, though, right? They're proper. I mean, this, uh, like it's I said, like Uncle chill. Creepy, Professor Madness, it's you know, like, like that. This is like you guys, this type of, type of thing. That you, we had you guys in mind when we were putting that together. <laughs> and anybody else that, that enjoys this kind of stuff. compliment. Yeah, no, it's a compliment. Absolutely. No, like I said, I'm, I'm fascinated of being down there and seeing, like I said, the remains of, I think the estimate is something like six million remains. Over six million. Yeah. And you know, oh my goodness. I mean, I've done a lot of research on this and the stories are great. You know, there were times, I mean, they were literally spilling out of these, yeah. you know, they weren't even digging them on the ground anymore. They were literally just putting them into enclosed areas mm -hmm. and at times they would break and you know bones and stuff would spill out and it was so unhygienic and the the flesh and everything would be rotting and everyone would be smelling mm -hmm. it and apparently the whole area stank so much yeah. that not even perfume could overpower it mm -hmm. and i can't imagine it and People just lived like that, lived yeah. like it for years and years until someone, you know, through a long, long drawn out process decided that, hey, maybe we should get rid of some of this rotting human flesh. <laughs> and, you know, most of the time they didn't even bury people properly because like, you know, burials were expensive. Yeah. Cremation. I mean, they didn't have cremation back then. You know, like you had to bury people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And all of this stuff was expensive. So apparently, they kind of cheated. They would like throw all the other bones out and just like bury one bone and then just stuff it in or something and burn the rest or something like yeah. that. Like they did all sorts of really awful kind of like cheat techniques of yeah. burial to give people like the the a bang bang for their buck, basically. Yeah, you know. It's like, oh, I'll bury your family member um, for $10, but I'll just bury their 
pinky and I'll burn the rest. Yeah. That sort of thing. You know, like weird, weird stuff. And Paris in those days, I mean, it's it's fascinating to read up on because it was grim, so effing grim. And honestly, I, I love it. I mean, that's why I love Patrick Ziskin's um, The Perfume. I love that book. I read it in German and in English and then in German again. So yeah. great. So great. I, I haven't read the book. Morbid. I watched the movie. The movie is... Oh, uh, and I watched the movie and I... Uh, I haven't it. read the book. For, for a lot of people said that it's pretty, pretty, you know, accurate and true to. Oh, to the it's book. so grim and lovely. Yeah, no, it's. I it's can't believe I'm amazing. saying that, but like honestly, passionately, it's one of my favorite books ever. Yeah, yeah. I am yet to read it, but like I said, the movie it was quite good. Wow, it's been a jam-packed show tonight. We we covered everything. I wanna I wanna send a, a big shout out to Steve Concatelli of the out of time saving the delorean time machine documentary definitely definitely check it out check out the website out of time movie.com spell like the license plate of the delorean and back to the future o-u-t-a-t-i-m-e movie.com definitely check it out support that if you know if you're a back to the future fan i don't need to say anymore honestly and if you're not a back to the future fan watch it and i think it'll make you a believer on how amazing that movie was and how important this car is to a lot of our childhoods, I'll say that much. I also want to send a huge thank you to uh, Ernie Alonso of Hunter Orange County and Ben Hansen for uh, calling in tonight, giving us the lowdown of what happened at the uh, Skyfire Summit, the 40th anniversary of that uh, infamous uh, event uh, where Travis Walton was uh, taken upon an a craft with mm-hmm. uh, ETs and if you want to find out more as I mentioned visit our website WOTRradio.com we have a full interview with Travis we talked about that in the documentary and of course uh, big thanks to everybody that made Kamikaze possible we always have a blast and we enjoy talking to all the all the different people out there there's a lot of talented people creative people people that just love to have fun and I'm all about that I, I quite enjoyed it and uh, of course I want to thank also Genevieve uh, because she's been doing a lot of work on the website putting a lot of articles up including this amazing amazing article from the catacombs it's really really a great read and rolling back to the out of time documentary shout out obviously to the flux capacitors, the flux capacitors. Um, on Twitter at flux capacitors uh, That's the coolest if bang name. I'm if, sorry. If you're in the LA area and stuff, you know, if you're into 80s music, check them out I, because they're they're a real life band. So I need out. to talk to Steve, grab that DeLorean, travel back in time, and make sure that I get that name for my band, which I don't have, but I would if they were called the Flux Capacitors. <laughs> Trust me, I would. I I would just be like playing to an empty room if necessary but just so i can say we're the flux capacitors that's pretty great cool. I, like, I i applaud them for getting that name before anyone else got it <laughs> professor madness asking for a link to the movie you sure can get it good sir we'll be sure to post it send it your way and for anybody else that wants to see it we'll be posting it on our twitter don't forget to check out the show on twitter at wotr radio <laughs> As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. The website is WOTRradio.com. As always, I'm I'm joined by my trusty co-pilot, Genevieve. That's Genevieve UA on Twitter. You know, sometimes I wish I hadn't chosen a complication name at the same time. I like... Yeah, but you're screwed now, pretty much. My parents chose it. 
<laughs> you know who to blame then. I should... Genevieve Uway on Twitter. Uh, if you don't know how to spell it, go to the West of the Rockies Twitter and find her there or something. And you can catch her on her very own show Thursday nights, 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, right here on the Independent FM. No Out of Flavors with Genevieve, talking music, jokes, facts, and a whole lot more. Check it out. She'll be taking your requests and all that good stuff at No Added Flavors, O-U-R-S at the end. Because in case you haven't noticed, she's got a bit of an accent. I'll be taking it all. Be careful how you... Uh, no, no, I... I oh, this is later. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Then it's fine. <laughs> then it's fine. Uh, and with that, we bid you guys good night. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. I want to go out with another another quote from your article. It says... Tis by the devil's envy, death came into the world. And I found that to be quite poetic. That being said, we're going to go out with some Porcupine Tree, my favorite track. I know it's a little long, but hey, I like to break the rules sometimes. Screw playing three and a half minute songs every time, right? We're going to play this one, Arriving Somewhere, Not Here, because Ernie just sent me a little video of their drive right now with Ben Hansen. And let me tell you, it looks, uh, it, it's quite, it looks quite perilous, the... the out there driving in the highway at night. Uh, it sounds up. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we wish him well. We want him to get home safe. And we want you guys to enjoy the rest of your night. Get some rest. Have a great weekend. And we'll see you next week. Here's some porcupine tree. Enjoy. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye, guys. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.